Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am your host Sotak Andrei and you're listening to episode 5 of the podcast in which I'm about to be joined by Nicolas Verhoeven to discuss inflammation. Nicolas is currently finishing up his master's degree in exercise physiology with his thesis focusing on muscle atrophy as it relates to sarcopenia and cachexia. He runs a YouTube channel called Physionic, pun intended, and a blog with the same name, on which he shares evidence-based information about a variety of topics related to physiology, nutrition, and general health. During our conversation, we tackle the controversial topic of inflammation and its implications for muscle growth and health. If you're interested in knowing what inflammation is, what are the potential causes of it, or what you can do to reduce it, then this episode is for you. So without further ado, here is episode 5 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with Nicolas Verhoeven. Nicolas Verhoeven, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, I'm glad to have you on. So today's topic is going to be inflammation. And just to kick things off, could you please let us know a bit in a couple of brief words about your background? What is it that you currently do and uh, how did you get interested in the topic of inflammation? Uh, sure, yeah, so um, I'm currently pursuing or finishing up my master's in exercise physiology and I just uh, put in my applications for a PhD in biomedical sciences, so hopefully going towards uh, medical school for my PhD. And uh, I'm currently doing my thesis in muscle atrophy um, specifically related to sarcopenia and cachexia. And uh, aside from that, I don't know. Oh, uh, in terms of why I'm interested in inflammation. Well, I'm actually interested in a lot of different things as it relates to the human body. And uh, that's kind of led me to at least one of those avenues. One of those interests is related to inflammation. And I think that there's a lot of... I, Maybe I shouldn't say a lot, but there's a there's certain misconceptions when it comes to understanding what inflammation is. So I just thought I'd I'd cover that. So just to kick things off and to clarify things for everyone listening, can you please define what exactly inflammation is? Yeah. So when when people talk about inflammation, they they talk about it kind of in a nebulous term. It's just inflammation. But really inflammation is essentially just an immune response. So an immune response to a particular stimulus. But again, when you talk to a person who just kind of discusses inflammation in general, uh, they just kind of use the term loosely, but I don't know if necessarily if you spoke to a person that they'd be able to define exactly what inflammation is. It's not just kind of red puffiness around your body. Um, it's an actual something's going on there. And what is that something? Well, it's an immune response to, again, a particular stimulus. And that stimulus can be uh, all kinds of different things. Right, because when most people think of inflammation, they probably think of a fever, for example, or a swollen mm. ankle or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so in that case, um, we are talking about uh, an acute inflammation, right? Yeah, in in the case of, of a fever, I guess it depends on the pathology you're talking about. But in general, I think most people think of inflammation as an acute inflammation when you're talking about a fever for, you know, I don't know, if you have the flu or, 
if uh, you get an infection, you get a cut on your leg and it gets infected, then you have an inflammatory response to something like that. But of course, it's only going to be going on for a short duration, meaning that it would be then acute. So I think there are two big uh, directions we can go with this. The first would be muscle growth and uh, how inflammation relates to it. And then the second would be health, overall health and uh, how inflammation might uh, influence that. So just to start with the first one, can you please describe how inflammation relates to muscle growth or uh, the lack of muscle growth or how it can interfere with it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so inflammation, when it comes to muscle growth, there's, again, I, I, it comes down to a lot of misconceptions. So I'll, I'll just kind of describe what it's supposed to do. What does inflammation do for muscle growth? Well. Uh, if you think again of inflammation as immune cells and kind of a stimulus that's that's caused, well, muscle growth tends to be stimulated by muscle trauma or microtrauma. So when we go through a lifting bout, whatever that is, if you do bodybuilding, powerlifting, whatever it is, uh, you're going to have a certain level of microtrauma that occurs on the cell wall, so the the actual myofiber itself, the actual uh, cell, and you're also going to have some trauma that occurs within the cell when you have these different structural components that lock together uh, to create actual resistance. So you can actually push a weight back up uh, if you're doing a bench press or a squat or a deadlift or whatever it is. So that trauma actually ends up leading to uh, a bunch of different things, but among those things you can see uh, a leaking of uh, calcium. Um, from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. You can also see uh, leaking of certain enzymes uh, and even just the trauma itself, the actual proteins that can break off of the uh, cell wall. So that's what ends up, that's that stimulus. So going back to the definition of an immune response to a stimulus, that's that stimulus that you're getting um, from that microtrauma. Then from there, you actually have an immune response. And that immune response is essentially just different immune cells that uh, aggregate and move towards that area of stimulation. So if you have any sort of damage, let's say we'll just take an example of doing squats. I know a lot of people hate doing squats, but we're gonna take that as our uh, situation. So if you look at squats, for example, you go through a set or let's say you do an entire workout, you get that stimulus, your immune cells are going to almost immediately start moving into that area. Um, it's not by you know some accident that your body starts providing blood flow toward that area. Um, not only do you need to nourish for the actual movement, but afterwards uh, your body has to pump a lot of immune cells into that area. So the initial immune cell that moves into that area is a neutrophil. So a neutrophil will move in within 30 minutes, 60 minutes, maybe a couple hours, and start uh, clearing away some of the debris. And you can think of it kind of like debris, so kind of broken protein pieces. It starts going through a process called phagocytosis. And through that process, it can start consuming proteins to get rid of those proteins, those broken pieces. Then after a while, however, they also end up releasing cytokines, and these cytokines end up signaling to uh, macrophages, which is another type of immune cell, and these macrophages will come in and start phagocytosing as well, usually larger pieces, and 
these cytokines, which are going to be released from many different immune cells in that area, uh, end up connecting with the muscle cell as well and start promoting protein synthesis. So you see there's this, this kind of long process that can happen from starting out from just like one hour out to uh, several days, you know, these macrophages come in about a day later, maybe 48 hours later, and these cytokines are communicating between different immune cells, but not only that, they're stimulating uh, protein synthesis, and they're also going to be stimulating other, other things like uh, satellite cell aggregation. You've mentioned their cytokines. Could you please define what that exactly means? Because I, I assume a lot of people have heard of the term inflammatory cytokines, but they might not be exactly sure what that is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so a cytokine is essentially just a protein. I mean, many things in our body are made up of proteins, but a lot of enzymes are made of proteins. Our cell walls are made of proteins. But a cytokine is a specific protein that's situated and built, synthesized for cell signaling. So not only are you getting that communication between immune cells, but you're also communicating with the cell that's actually been damaged, so the muscle cell that's been damaged. So a few examples would be something, and I'm sure many people have heard of these, especially if you're interested in exercise physiology, uh, interleukin-6, insulin growth factor, uh, fibroblast growth factor, TNF-alpha, um, among of many, many others. These are just kind of the, the, the common ones that, that people talk about. And uh, are those measured usually? Because some studies reference them as a marker of inflammation and maybe even as how they relate to recovery. So um, are they commonly measured in uh, exercise studies? Uh they can be, yeah. I, I'm not actually familiar. I haven't actually done any of these measures on, on any of these particular cytokines um, with, with the studies that I've been involved in. But <clears throat> I do know that you can absolutely measure, uh, for example, inter interleukin-6 is a big one, um, as well as TNF-alpha. If you've read in anything into um, some of the cold immersion uh, studies, mm -hmm. those those have studied uh, TNF-alpha and kind of used that as as kind of a platform for different hypotheses yeah. so yeah you can definitely you can definitely measure cytokines yeah they are these are usually used as a proxy measure kind of to mm. assess inflammation and the recovery so you mentioned the cold water immersion going back to the training most people i guess will be familiar with the soreness and uh, i guess we've all heard because a couple of years ago that's how it was described to me that's how muscle growth works you tear down the muscle fiber, then you create these uh, micro ruptures, and uh, then you take protein, and then these micro tears heal, and then your fibers get stronger, and that's how you get a bigger bicep. So is that the case that um, more uh, muscle damage, because essentially that's what we're talking about, more muscle damage, which leads to more inflammation, which leads to muscle growth, is that the linear relationship, or is that uh, some sort of a context lost there um well there's definitely some context that needs to be applied to that but in general if you were to look at kind of the timetable that would that's a pretty good roundup of you know essentially getting that damage getting that inflammatory response and then hopefully getting some new protein synthesis that's going to be elevated at least transiently and you're going to then be able to actually build more more protein and build more muscle uh, over time. 
So in terms of DOMS, uh, that's essentially what you're experiencing. You're experiencing microtrauma, and that's what's actually causing a lot of, of that pain that you might feel the next day or, you know, even <laughs> for certain people. Again, if we go back to our example with, with legs, <laughs> you might experience that for like a week. Right, right. So then uh, just to go back to cold water immersion, there have been many similar strategies in order to reduce inflammation as to promote a faster recovery. As it relates to muscle growth, is that a beneficial idea or uh, maybe that's something we should uh, give a second thought to? Uh, For cold water immersion itself, so the only exposure that I have to it is just uh, a study that I looked at for one of my courses actually. So I'm, I'm hesitant to say that cold water immersion is immediately a bad thing, you know, labeling something as, as, you know, black or white, good or bad. This one particular study did look at the the cytokine TNF-alpha, which is tumor necrosis factor, if nobody's familiar with it, and saw an increase in it, which, I mean, you, you, you can read that certain, you know, certainly many different ways, uh, but I think the study ended up assuming that the uh, increase in TNF-alpha was, was decreasing muscle growth, um, so it was impeding hi- hypertrophy. Uh, again, though, looking at one cytokine and just kind of making a, a broad assumption off that, uh, I, I, I wouldn't prescribe or I wouldn't, yeah, I, I wouldn't go along with, with just believing that looking at one thing, especially if it's just one little protein, one cytokine, that that's going to be enough to, to actually... Uh, make any sort of serious conclusions off of that. Although I guess uh, cold water immersion is something that not many people have uh, access to or not, it's not really uh, realistic for most people. However, similar or uh, related strategy would be something like taking vitamin C or uh, other uh, antioxidants to elicit ex- the same effect basically to reduce the post-workout dumps as you said. What do you think about those strategies? Yeah, those, uh, there's, there's quite a bit of research on that. Um, when you're talking about vitamins or you're talking about NSAIDs, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So if you're talking about vitamins, you have things, certain vitamins like vitamin E, vitamin D, vitamin B12, B6, B9. Those are just a few that have been implicated or at least uh, looked into for their effects on decreasing inflammation as a whole in terms of how they would impact muscle growth. And I think that's something you kind of alluded to earlier, that there may be a lot of context that kind of fits around those. So do they decrease uh, inflammation? I would probably say yes, but do they necessarily impede or uh, help in the actual muscle growth process? Uh, That's when it comes down to context uh, specifically. Yeah, I really like Andy Galpin has a quote and I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to butcher it. Anyway, the point is that, for example, if you are going to have a tournament or something like that or a, or a, a meet in a couple of weeks, then maybe taking something like a high dose vitamin C to help recovery, but that's going to be beneficial in the short term. But maybe that's actually going to be a detriment in the long term if you're going to use the same strategy. If... Uh, long-term development and uh, long-term muscle growth is the goal yeah i could see that and that's and that's certainly true 
I mean, this, this conversation of context can really be applied to anything and everything when it relates to the body. And I think that's something that a lot of people fail to understand. They just kind of assume that, you know, one study comes out or even a series of studies. I mean, even if the body of literature is saying one thing, uh, what a lot of people that don't actually read the literature just kind of assume is that, oh, I'll just take this one thing and it'll help me forever, always. You know, and things just don't work that way. There's this, we keep going back to it, but there's a lot of context that goes around a lot of these different situations. There have been a recent series of studies on uh, inflammation and uh, specifically ANSAIDs, like you mentioned them. I'm sure you've seen them in uh, different populations and the outcomes are maybe surprisingly to some, maybe not surprisingly to the others. The outcomes are very different. So could you please address a bit the effects that uh, inflammation has or these uh, anti-inflammatory drugs might have if the population is a younger one versus someone like person or the person with sarcopenia, like the one you mentioned you fo- you're focusing on in your thesis? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I, I wrote an article on uh, NSAIDs and it was actually funny enough, I've already mentioned this class once, uh, but... We looked at TNF-alpha, but we also looked at a study on NSAIDs. And this one study was kind of the classical understanding of how inflammation, if you take NSAIDs and you see a decrease in protein synthesis, and it was very pretty pretty definitive. And it made me interested, but as a person who's, who's trying to be unbiased about these things, of course, you have to look at the body of literature. So I started looking at the body of literature. And it turned out that there were a lot of studies that were saying the exact opposite of this particular study. And there are certainly some studies that were saying, yeah, NSAIDs hinder muscle growth. And then you have other studies that say NSAIDs actually help muscle growth. So that's really confusing, right? <laughs> and it turns out that there's, there's a variable there that's different between both types of studies. The age the main variable is age between the participants. So in the NSAID studies that looked at younger populations, it tended to hinder uh, muscle growth. And in the elderly population, it tended to help with muscle growth. And then the question is, well, how exactly, what, what's the reasoning behind that? Why, why is that happening? Well, it actually comes down, and this is just kind of what my thought process is. Somebody else could certainly disagree. But my thought process is that if you are younger, you tend not to have a lot of systemic inflammation. So any sort of muscle growth or any sort of stimulus, as we talked about earlier, if you have an, a stimulus and you have an increase in kind of that acute inflammatory response, and if you were to take NSAIDs on top of that, then you would see a decrease in that inflammatory response. And if you see a decrease in that inflammatory response, what are you going to get? You're going to get decreases in protein synthesis because you're not getting those uh, quiescent stem cells being activated, the satellite cells to proliferate and differentiate, as well as uh, those cytokines attaching to the cell wall and telling the cell, hey, you need to start producing proteins. But on the other hand, a person who's elderly, or and I would imagine that this would probably be true for not just elderly populations, but also for pathologies in general. But if a person is older and they maybe have arthritis or, you know, whatever it is, osteoporosis or any sort of, it can even be just kind of a a low-level inflammatory response, if they have this continuous inflammation that's chronic as opposed to acute, these NSAIDs might actually increase the ability for the muscles to attenuate 
to that particular inflammatory response. So to that stimulus from muscle growth, from damaging those muscles and going through that entire process. So I think that's that's where there was a lot of confusion between those two populations. And you know, I was certainly confused by it when I first read it. And then I started reading more into it and connecting the dots. Yeah, that would make sense. And uh, that's usually what uh, someone that only reads the headlines or maybe the abstracts is likely going to miss. Yeah, I I think so too. And it's certainly true. And again, it's it's just it's another one of those situations where you just read the headline and then you just kind of roll with it or uh, not even reading the headline. I mean, you, I, I hate I, I don't want to harp on journalists or anything, but uh, they don't really have most. I'll, I'll, I'll put a stipulation there. Most don't really know how to read research. So, and it takes, it takes some getting used to, you know, I'm not perfect either, but it takes some getting used to, to be able to read into the details and understand some of that physiology of what's going on and what might be the physiological explanation for why certain things are happening. And the only way to do that is to read beyond the headline and not even just beyond the headline. Don't read the article, read the actual study that hopefully that article is linking to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we've mentioned their long-term chronic inflammation, and uh, in the beginning we were talking about acute inflammation. Could you please elaborate a bit on what's the difference between the two? Uh, yeah, so this is going to be pretty simple. Uh, acute inflammation is essentially just inflammation that happens over a short period of time. Uh, so that can be a few minutes, a few hours, maybe a few days. Uh, chronic inflammation would be more long-standing and tends to be usually a few weeks, a few months, but definitely in the years. Uh, so examples of that would be for acute inflammation, obviously muscle damage, uh, be that pathological or just from resistance training, uh, infection as well, that would belong in that. And for chronic, you're talking about, again, you can talk about certain pathologies like cardiovascular disease or diabetes. So do we know exactly what causes these chronic inflammatory states? Ooh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you were to ask somebody that created what the health, and we, we know exactly <laughs> what causes all of these, uh, these diseases or forks over knives or all these other uh, kind of BS documentaries. But uh, the answer is, is far, far more uh, detailed than that, a lot more integrated. And that's why we have thousands and thousands of scientists around the world trying to figure out, especially in the United States for specifically cardiovascular disease and diabetes. But um, there are a number of reasons. And it can come down to nutrition. It can come down to just your lifestyle. Or it can come down to genetics. Or it can even be down to just you're just unlucky. Um, you, you end up getting some sort of pathology like arthritis or an autoimmune disease or allergies even. I mean, all kinds of different things. So how can we measure this chronic inflammation in the real life? Because many people like to throw out that, uh, oh, you're inflamed or inflammation is stopping you from building muscle or uh, don't eat these six foods because they are making you inflamed, but no one talks about anything tangible or no one who says they are inflamed or they got rid of the inflammation actually comes back with the lab measurement and blood measurement to objectively show proof that this has actually happened. So how do, do we measure chronic inflammation in your life? 
Yeah, so I, I'm not a clinician, but I, I do know of a few different methods that we can measure uh, kind of systemic inflammation. And uh, some of them are going to be more specific to particular diseases, certainly very prevalent d diseases like cardiovascular disease. You could certainly measure something as simple as VLDL or LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, if you want to look at the good side. Uh, diabetes, on the other hand, you might look at just glucose or uh, your blood glucose. But in terms of kind of general inflammation that's not really necessarily specific to one disease or another disease, uh, your doctor would most likely look at something like C-reactive protein. Uh, so looking at C-reactive protein and also one that I'm not that familiar with but I, I know of is erythrocyte sediment rate. Uh, which is essentially just looking at if you take, if you draw blood and um, I'm assuming they centrifuge it to kind of separate it out. I'm not sure if they exactly do that, but there has to be some separation there. So then they essentially measure how quickly the blood pellets will or the blood cells will eventually fall to the bottom of that tube. And if it falls mm. rather quickly, that means that you've got a lot of proteins, a lot of sediments uh, between the actual uh, blood cells, the different erythrocytes. And that's essentially saying that there's something wrong or there's, I, I hate to say that it's going to be 100%, there's absolutely something wrong, but it's maybe kind of an alarm, you know, for a doctor mm -hmm. to look into something a little more specific. And going back to C-reactive protein, that is actually something that a lot of people use. And that one actually makes a lot of sense because it's, uh, it's produced by your liver and it's secreted to, to bind to specifically to dying cells. Um, and eventually what happens is once they attach to those dying cells, you go through a process called apoptosis. Um, also, it can go through necrosis and, and phagocytosis where uh, other cells will come by, other immune cells will come by and, and kind of eat them. I mean, almost, almost literally eat uh, the dying cell. So you can imagine if you have an increase in C-reactive protein, a, a considerable increase in C-reactive protein, then, you know, well, that's, that's not a great sign. Uh, something's going on there. Yeah, um, CRP is probably the more popular one that uh, more people have heard of. So what exactly are the health impacts of chronic inflammation? Is there a specific one or are all the ones you've previously mentioned kind of all in this whole bucket or inflammation-related diseases? Yeah, the, uh, the health impacts of chronic inflammation are numerous. Uh, the worst one is death. I think we can, <laughs> we can just go ahead and put that right on the table. Uh, that, that would be the worst one. Other ones are certainly related to different pathologies. If you're talking about something like heart disease, uh, you know, from continuously having high LDL levels, uh, having high VLDL levels, having low HDL levels. Uh, also just cancer, uh, diabetes, I guess I'll touch on diabetes real quick, just having an increase, a continuously high level of glucose in your, in your blood leads to glycosylation uh, of those erythrocytes, so they don't function as well, they can't transport oxygen as well, all kinds of different things in that area. Cancer, and this is something that's kind of a little bit different, uh, mainly because we're not 100% certain what causes cancer. I mean, we've got, you know, of course, genetics, 
There's a lot of labs that say it has to do with metabolism. Uh, you have all kinds of different theories, and they're probably all kind of correct in certain ways. But one of them is related to inflammation, chronic inflammation, due to uh, ROS production, so reactive oxygen species. And most of that, and this is just kind of an assumption, I'm assuming that this is coming from uh, the electron transport chain. If you feed too much food kind of through your cells, uh, through your entire system, that the electron transport chain can't go through and produce enough because there isn't enough demand, um, which is essentially what we're talking about here is calories. If you're over consuming calories, you're not expending enough, then of course you're going to gain weight. But along with that weight gain comes an excess production of ROS. So an excess production of ROS has all kinds of different impacts. I mean, it can impact your cardiovascular health. It can certainly impact uh, your cancer risk and a bunch of other things as well. Excellent. So um, how does diet, exercise, and body composition influence the chronic inflammatory response? Can we modulate this with uh, exercise or does being leaner and or more muscular protect us from these potential long-term effects? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, there's huge, huge benefits for each diet, exercise, and then we can also certainly look at body composition. So. If we look at diet, you can stratify it so many different ways. Uh, first of all, if you just look at calories, just simple as that, and I can go back to my previous example, if you overconsume calories, essentially all of your cells, their ETC is running just as fast as it possibly can, but there's no demand for that energy. So essentially you just kind of gain weight, you continuously gain weight. That's going to lead to chronic inflammation. Not only that, if you overconsume or if you uh, consume certain foods, then you're going to uh, be increasing your LDL levels. You're going to be uh, decreasing your HDL levels, so that's low-density lipoprotein and high-density lipoprotein. And HDL is correlated with uh, better health, and LDL, if you have high LDL, then uh, you tend to have lower health or worse health. Also. You can have uh, C-reactive protein certainly increases. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, also, your glucose levels tend to be higher, you know, pre-diabetic range, even diabetic range. And that's all simply just from over-consuming foods. I mean, be that quote-unquote clean foods or uh, whatever foods you want to consider. Uh, if you're over-consuming it, if you're gaining weight, and if you continuously gain weight year after year after year, uh, then you're going to see this increase in risk. And there's a lot of really interesting things. I mean, your immune system is certainly uh, involved in that as well. Uh, that chronic inflammation, again, because it's related to that immune system, if, if you see an increase in LDL, uh, the fear with that is that uh, you have these different immune cells, typically macrophages, that consume LDL and they oxidize LDL. But the issue is that LDL, those LDL particles can get stuck on uh, the endothelial layer, so uh, where your vessels are. So essentially, they can move within that, that endothelial layer, and those macrophages can kind of follow. And they start pushing into the endothelial layer, and they can oxidize LDL. Now, the issue with that is not only are they secreting cytokines, kind of saying, hey, 
we've got issues here, we need to clean this up. And then you have more immune cells going into that region. And that's what essentially starts leading to that plaque formation. So you have fatty streaks that form, and then you have uh, atherosclerosis from there. That's just kind of one example when diet is, is huge, over-consuming and also just not consuming the correct foods. But if you were also talk about something like vitamins, if you're not consuming enough of those vitamins, uh, you're essentially, your entire metabolism is dependent on these micronutrients. If you're not consuming enough of these micronutrients, you're, you're absolutely doing yourself a disservice uh, because uh, the ETC is not going to work, the TCA cycle is not going to work, glycolysis isn't going to function. If, if those aren't functioning, you're, you're in real trouble. So under-consuming can certainly be an issue, but I'd like to also say that over-consumption of certain vitamins can be detrimental as well. So again, going back to context, it really matters, you know, being within a particular range and making sure that you're not chronically over-consuming particular vitamins or under-consuming particular vitamins, that all can lead to increased inflammation. And then uh, when it comes to exercise, I know people aren't going to be happy to hear this, but uh, steady state cardio, actually moderate intensity steady state cardio has been shown to lower LDL, increase HDL, decrease diabetes risk, decrease C-reactive protein, have all kinds of different benefits. And that actually, that research actually came out of, out of the university that I attend. So we're pretty familiar with that. And I'm hoping that we can start seeing more research towards strength training. It's actually something that I've asked uh, some of the, the directors at, at my school about because I, I'd be interested in finding out if uh, resistance training can also lower LDL, you know, increase HDL and uh, reduce diabetes risk in general. So that would be really amazing. And then if we look at body composition, like you mentioned, uh, really just looking at body composition, kind of taking a step back and understanding that to reach that body composition, to reach a favorable body composition, I'm not talking about like contest lean, I'm not talking, you know, 6% body fat, I'm talking, you know, just generally healthy, kind of muscular, but not, you know, totally crazy or anything like that, maybe 12% body fat, 10% body fat uh, for a male. Just getting to that level, just having that body composition, means that you have to have some level, and I'm sure genetics probably help, but you have to have some level of discipline. And if you have that level of discipline, most likely that discipline is going into your diet and your exercise. So just as kind of an aside, body composition as, as, a, as a consequence of diet and exercise is, is a great sign of lowering, you know, having lower uh, inflammatory markers. That doesn't mean that a person can't have uh, a decent body composition and have a little bit higher uh, glucose levels or whatever but in general I think I think it's pretty safe to say that if you have a favorable body composition with higher muscle mass relatively lean that uh, you stick to your diet and that you're pretty conscious of your exercise and therefore you're most likely kind of in that healthier range yeah and um, excess adiposity itself has a uh, some uh direct negative effects on for example glucose tolerance and i would assume chronic inflammation and it related to that topic uh, recently has been this uh, trend that um, well uh, you shouldn't go above certain body fat percentage because your health is going to automatically go down the toilet and your inflammation is going to skyrocket and your uh, insulin sensitivity is going to go down the drain too 
So I would be curious to hear what do you think about this and do you think that there's a certain cutoff point where whoops, your body just says, oh, sorry guys, we've gone over the 15% mark. Now we're at 15.1. Now it's time to wrap up information. Yeah, that's interesting actually. Uh, for a long time, and I, I think I still pretty much subscribe to this belief that Again, it's going to come down to context. I mean, it depends on who you ask. And certainly some people have great body composition, but their genetics just suck. You know, they may have just one genetic variation that ends up leading to them just overproducing LDL cholesterol, whatever it is, you know, or high C-reactive protein. And in situations like that, those are kind of the outliers. But in general, if you were to look at a person who's just kind of uh, slightly overweight. I mean, it, they're 19% body fat and then they hit 20% and suddenly their body just shuts down. It, that stuff doesn't really happen. Um, really, it's kind of a continuous habit that you go through. Maybe you don't exercise as much. Maybe you don't, uh, you're not paying attention to your diet as much. Whatever it is, that is kind of a, a continuous increase and that's what's going to eventually lead to gradual increases in inflammation, gradual decreases in, in your health, and it's not necessarily just going from one number to the next number. I will say though, and the, the one thing that kind of swayed me, there's some research, again, I'm just kind of talking out of my university, there's, there's research talking about BMI, and I know BMI is certainly not going to be uh, taking into consideration uh, body composition, but uh, if a person has a BMI of, I believe, 25 to about 35, which would be in that obese range, uh, you can still be relatively healthy. There are certain stipulations. I'm not going to go into that, but there are certain stipulations for that. But funny enough, if you reach, if you get up to about 40 BMI, there's almost nothing that will actually protect against certain inflammatory markers. So regardless of what you do, if you were to exercise and whatnot, but still maintain a BMI of 40, you would see almost no benefits from that exercise. So there seems to be some level of a cutoff point where uh, regardless of what you do, you're not going to see any sort of benefit, which I find really interesting. I'd really like to know what exactly is causing that. I mean, of course, if you have a BMI of 40, you're, you're severely, severely overweight. Um, but I just find that kind of interesting because initially I just thought that it was really context driven and it's very individual. So in most cases, if you're looking at a person who's mild, and I think that's certainly still true, if a person is still mild at like their 19.9% body fat, if they suddenly tip the scale to 20% body fat, you know, their C-reactive protein isn't going to fly up and their body's just having a party. I mean, <laughs> things are very gradual. So that's just kind of my take on, on, on that whole thought process. Right. Uh, that would make sense because after a certain point, probably you've done just so much damage to your body that it just it just can't repair itself and the whole thing crashes. But that's certainly far, far, far away from what most people reference when they talk about uh, these cutoff points because a 40 BMI versus someone at 15% or 17% exercising four or five times a week 
that's completely completely different yeah absolutely uh, you've mentioned previously the overconsumption of certain nutrients one strategy that has been used for a number of years now it's uh, the consumption of fish oil and uh, omega-3 products because there's been some research showing that they have anti-inflammatory properties but then there's the whole other aspect of megadosing them and there have been certain people in the fitness industry who have recommended taking something like 20 grams of fish oil a day um do you think that's a good idea because i've heard uh, chris master joe mentioned this previously that inflammation and the anti-inflammatory process are governed by the same enzyme complex uh, the cox enzyme and certainly correct me if i'm getting something incorrect there but um his point was that essentially by taking a super high dose fish oil product yes you are stopping the inflammation but you are kind of never going back to the previous pre-inflamed baseline level essentially because you've also inhibited the cox enzyme that would have stopped the inflammation what do you think about that yeah that's interesting i hadn't heard about that last part you mentioned with uh with what chris has, has mentioned um i do know that fish oil and you know other omega-3 sources especially eicosapentaenoic hopefully i'm pronouncing that correctly EPA, all, yeah yeah that always that always throws me off uh, <laughs> so epa seems to have a pretty profound impact or probably the most profound impact other than uh, dha alpha linoleic acid and there's actually two more that again th- those names are so long that it's 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 difficult for me to remember Uh, But EPA specifically does have the most impact at reducing pro-inflammatory pathways, tends to reduce your LDL levels, tends to increase HDL levels, tends to reduce your overall blood pressure. And I believe that also it acts as an antioxidant. So kind of going back to that Ross production I was talking about. So it could help in, in that way as well. So it has a similar effect. And you mentioned that uh, the the COX enzyme, which is the cyclooxygenase enzyme, which comes in three different isoforms. And those actually synthesize a hormone called prostaglandin, which is a a lipid molecule. It's not exactly a hormone, but I'm not going to quibble about the details right now. And essentially, that helps by stimulating pain and also induces an inflammatory response. And I haven't actually looked at the, the mechanism for how omega-3s or EPA specifically might inhibit uh, that COX enzyme, but I'm assuming that maybe it does. Uh, it, it, I know in terms of like if you, were to, if you were to take a step back and just give a person EPA and then measure, you know, take biochemical uh, markers, then you would see a decrease in those biochemical markers, at least uh, towards pro-inflammatory pathways, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I couldn't necessarily say if uh, mega dosing. I don't know. I, I, I'm not a huge fan of ideas where where people think, well, all right, well, I think we should maybe just overconsume this a whole lot. Uh, I think typically, and I'm I'm saying this because I'm not. I haven't actually looked at the data, but typically moderate doses of certain molecules, be that EPA or whatever it is, uh, tends to be probably the most prudent and also you still see some of that benefit. Megadosing, I think you mentioned, what, 20 20 grams, something like that? Yeah, I've seen figures like that thrown around. Yeah, that's not too, too extreme. 
Um, another thing that people need to consider, and this is probably kind of a fringe thought, is that you're adding 20 grams. I mean, if you're if you're taking that away from your diet, then that's fine. But um, 20 grams of uh, whatever it is, EPA uh, or another fish oil supplement, uh, that's an additional what nine calories per 20 grams. Uh, well, per gram times 20. Um, so that's that might also kind of slightly increase. I, can I necessarily say that hyperdosing or superdosing is going to have a negative impact or a positive impact? I can't say that, but um, I guess I'm I'm a little skeptical. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, I, I think that what you said there about being prudent and not taking stupid amounts of anything is probably a good idea. Right. So um, do you think or the, does the data say that there are inherently inflammatory foods? Because that's often something that's we can see in the, in the nutrition uh, sphere, certain articles or people saying that you should avoid these common inflammatory foods and most often the ones thrown out are gluten, dairy or sugar. Do you think that's the case that uh, these foods have some kind of inherently inflammatory properties? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I think most people would jump at that question and think, absolutely, no doubt, you know, inflammation <laughs> foods, there are definitely foods that cause inflammation. But if you look at most uh, people in the medical community and, well, probably more specifically in the nutrition science community and physiology and whatnot, they probably kind of take a step back and it really depends on how you're going to define inflammation. I would tend to say that there's probably some foods that do cause inflammation. I think it's probably more prevalent, and I've mentioned this before, that if you overconsume foods, you're going to see an increase in ROS production, specifically superoxides, and that comes through within the cell. You're going you're gonna to have that just from excess food consumption. Other foods that I think we're pretty definitively going to say that's it may not cause inflammation, but I'm pretty sure it does, is something like trans fats. Uh, I know in the United States, I think the FDA is going to be banning trans fats either this year or next year, something along those lines, because I think we've essentially uh, realized that trans fats just aren't good for us whatsoever. And Another instance would be something, and you mentioned this, uh, gluten. I'm not talking about people who are gluten uh, insensitive or sensitive, whatever you want to call it, but people who have specific pathologies. And that can range tremendously, of course, if a person has something like celiac disease, but also if they just have autoimmune diseases, other auto, autoimmune diseases, you're essentially talking about a situation where a person's physiology shifts from a normal physiology to a pathophysiological state. So whatever you know about physiology in situations like that, I, I won't say it, it goes out the window, but it's not the same. It's, it's not, you can't think of physiology in the same light as you can pathophysiology. So if you look at a person who has a particular autoimmune disease and they eat particular foods and they have some sort of reaction to it, uh, that can certainly be a, a prime example of an inflammatory food. Uh, but if you look at a normal population, normal as in, you know, relatively healthy uh, population and they just consume some sugar and sugar is a huge one. Man, oh man, you, I, I keep thinking back to this particular documentary that said that sugar was addictive as cocaine. I, I just found that insane no it's, you've it's, got you've got that wrong 
Sugar is seven times as addictive as cocaine. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> seven <laughs> times as addictive as cocaine. Well, people eat sugar all the time, so it must be, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, those kind of documentaries and those kind of mentalities, I think that's what's really dangerous. And that's what ends up leading people to think that foods, you know, if you have 20 grams of sugar, I mean, Let's get this straight. Like sugar, if you look at sugar, your body needs sugar. I mean, glucose as glucose. It needs glucose. If you don't have glucose, you are dead, my friend. You are not listening to this right now. So you have to have certain types of sugars, certain levels of sugar. So again, to think that a particular food, if you're not in any sort of pathological condition, I think it's probably pretty rare and probably... Another thing a person should probably consider is how much of an impact is that really going to have? Let's just, in a, in a faraway world, imagine that sugar does have an inflammatory response for healthy individuals. If that's a 1% increase in inflammation and you have it like once a week, is that really going to have any sort of impact uh, You know, in, in long-standing life? I would probably say no. So I just have my doubts. Right, right. Yeah, I think the issue is that people generalize they don't even think of someone who has because obviously if someone has an autoimmune disease and their immune system just their slides up like christmas tree when they eat gluten or something like that then that's obviously an inflammatory food in that case but right. the issue is that then uh, pathology like that it's extrapolated or it's generalized to everyone that if you have a peanut allergy then everyone should be staying away from peanuts that's exactly. kind of how it's portrayed when it comes to sugar and i think context is just lost because for example like you mentioned i've heard from certain very intelligent people in our industry that they will reference a biochemical uh, pathway or maybe an in vitro study or something like that when you use this culture if you use sugar this and that happens and that means that you're going to be inflamed and <laughs> lane norton and i don't know if you've seen this uh, lane has published a lab uh, work of his and he, he he has i feel he has uh, kind of deliberately gone the other extreme so he eats sugar or something like that just to prove a point and then uh, right. and his lab work came back and his crp was basically zero right that was uh that was with uh that was a video with dr Nadolsky, with spencer right? yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, that I, was I a funny one because based on his affirmations he eats as much sugar as pretty much any sane guy is going to eat while considering his overall diet and the balance and micronutrition and all that kind of stuff so right. sugar was really that inflammatory that should have been reflected in his lab work and it wasn't so yeah exactly and that's that's probably the best way to measure it i mean if you if you look at these bio, biochemical markers um that for example that lane did you look at c-reactive protein and all the other ones if you're in a healthy situation your, your cells are just going to gobble that stuff up i mean if you're not increasing your weight tremendously if you're controlling everything and that goes back to one of your questions about body composition if your body composition is decent and you're exercising and your uh, nutrition is relatively good i mean we're not talking about like you have to go vegan paleo super amazing you know everything oh i can't have this one tootsie pop or whatever it is uh it, just normal just within reason i think most people understand within reason don't go to mcdonald's three times a day it's it's pretty simple you know so 
I think people, and you mentioned this, that people just really overblow this stuff. And it's kind of sad and it's it's unfortunate to have that, that mentality be so pervasive in, in society. And that's that's where scientists need to have a greater voice. And that's why I really respect people like uh, Alan Aragon and uh, Lyle McDonald and, and f- certainly many, many more aside from them. Um, they, they're really trying to get that message across of moderation and, and understanding foods that you can't just read a headline and just kind of assume that that applies to everyone. So when it comes down to it, the best way to put this is it comes down to context. That is right. huge. Right. And just to kind of summarize things, I think two of the biggest ones that are lost are one, your overall lifestyle and your body composition and what are the things that you do aside from eating that specific sugar or whatever food that is considered inflammatory. And two, you've actually touched on this, is the magnitude because okay, let's suppose that sugar is going to have an inflammatory response or effect. And because of that, you're going to die certain period sooner. And let's say that translates over across a lifetime to one year lost from your theoretical ideal life expectancy or lifespan. Is that really going to be worth the trade-off of not eating (laughs) anything that's remotely delicious? Or anything that has a bit of sugar added to it because you're that terrified. Yeah, absolutely. And then you can even throw in, uh, you mentioned the word terrified. That's a perfect example of the psychology, how that affects your psychology as well. If you can't have a healthy relationship with food, then it's not only affecting your physiology, it's also certainly affecting your, your psychology as well. Right, right. I like to tell people when they ask me about a very, very minute detail, that probably worrying about that is going to cause you more harm than, than uh, eating that specific thing. So yeah, just forget absolutely. about it. Exactly. Okay, Nick, uh, I think that was that was excellent. I think we covered this topic pretty thoroughly. Was there anything else that you wished I would have asked you and I hadn't? Uh, no, I no. I think I think for the most part, um, you know, I've I've always been interested in how the physiology works and whatnot. So I'm, I'm glad I was able to get some of that across just so people understand what exactly inflammation is, at least on certain levels. And so they can have kind of a balanced idea, essentially that, you know, having too much inflammation is, is probably not a great thing, uh, something you want to avoid. But having, you know, no inflammation essentially means that, uh, especially when it comes to muscle growth, that you're uh, maybe not optimally getting that, that stimulus for for protein synthesis for a number of reasons so just kind of getting that across again moderation context all of that matters uh, supremely awesome so if anyone wants to get in touch with you look you up on social media where can people find you uh well i'm especially proud of my youtube channel which i I put tons of work into as as a grad student i essentially my entire weekends are dedicated to just working on that platform and essentially all I do is educate individuals and I I write articles on my website physionic.org it's p-h-y-s-i-o-n-i-c dot org and uh, my YouTube channel is physionic pretty simple and essentially I just write these articles uh, and I put all my references in in the the reference section for each article it's all free and uh, you can find me on youtube and 
you'll see those uh, those articles there as well as me explaining that article in a, in a video format for those people that really like an auditory slash visual uh, stimulation. You can also find me on Facebook as Physionic as well. So, and those are really the the main ways that you can you can communicate with me. Excellent, and uh, I will link all those in the description of this episode. Before you leave, I would like to ask you the final question that I ask people who come Sounds on, good. and that is simply, what is your definition of success? Uh, it's almost like you get into philosophy. <laughs> we spend an hour talking about physiology and nutrition, and suddenly we're talking philosophy. Uh, I think it just comes down to being able to do what you love. And if if it reaches out to thousands and thousands of people, or if it's just for yourself, just feeling fulfilled in yourself, I think that's probably the biggest way to, or at least that's the way I define success for myself. And certainly that's going to be different from individual to individual. Um, it's not so much about money necessarily, but it's about uh, seeing that there's a hole in the world and seeing where you can fill that hole. Awesome. And uh, with that, I would like to thank you for taking the time to do this, taking the time to come on and uh, to share all the knowledge with us. And uh, I hope to talk with you sometime in the future. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun, tons of fun. I, I'm not quite brave enough to start a podcast myself. I think I'll stick to, to YouTube. So uh, it was it was really, it's it's awesome to, to see more of those podcasts come out. And uh, I think I've already listened to a few of your, your other ones. I think this is really going to be a huge venture uh, forward. And you definitely, you definitely have a listener in me. Thanks a lot again. I appreciate that. Have a good one. And that was episode 5 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with Nicolas Verhoeven. I hope you found it helpful and took at least one valuable thing out of it. If you're a regular listener and you enjoyed the episodes, please leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. It would really help. If this is your first time listening, check out the other episodes and see if any of them look interesting to you. Make sure you check out Nicolas on all the social media platforms he mentioned and say hi to him. As always, feel free to contact me with any questions or feedback you might have. As a last reminder, this podcast is also available on YouTube in video format. And with that, I'll close this week's episode. Until next week, take care.